Turn to chapter 48 and look at what it is that the Lord has to say to us. Um, I guess just by a quick word of, of review and, and catch-up, we're, we're, we're coming to the end of Jacob's life and the end of Joseph's life, and it's been, it's been quite a drama. We have gone through generations and generations of people, and then the book of Genesis all of a sudden stops, and it, slo- it slows way down, and it takes its time getting through the story of Jacob, uh, Abraham really, starting with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, a uh, lot of time with Jacob. We've been with Jacob for, for quite some time, and we're going to say goodbye to him tonight. Um, a lot of family drama, a lot of lessons learned. And what I, I was thinking about this, because I was, I was preparing for the, the morning message uh, that didn't happen, so it'll happen sometime in the future. But as I was, I was going through it, I, I, I was t- going to teach on Genesis. And man, if you guys, if you're note takers, or if you've, been, you know, if you've, if you've got a, a, a memory better than mine and you can recall through this, this book, how many times... The Lord, it's, it, there's so many stories that seem to kind of either be insignificant or, or at least not real gripping tales, and they're easy to read over, they're easy to forget, but when you slow down and, and you do it the way that we've been doing it, man, how many times human beings are told very clearly what to do, and, I'm not, and that's not necessarily mean, means that what they're told to do is easy or that it's going to be fun, but it's clear. The Lord says go, or he says don't go, do this, don't do that. And how many times human beings get impatient, get angry, get scared, and take control into their own hands and then make a huge mess out of everything. And time and time and time again, the Lord graciously meets people there, saves them, and then even you, somehow commandeers is, is the word that Josh has been using a lot. I like the word commandeer or... or, or or um, he, he devises, he, like, he takes something and he turns it, something that's ugly, something that's, that's rotten, something that's sinful, and he still somehow in his, in his, his sovereignty and his omnipotence and his omniscience, he, he uses it for good and, and oftentimes even blesses the person who is being a bonehead to begin with. Um, and we've seen that throughout Jacob's life. And so I just, I mean, the book of Genesis is just such a testimony to God's grace over and over and over, his grace. And we see so clearly the egg on our face and, and rightfully so, sometimes just full on uh, experiencing the consequences of our actions. And so many times the Lord just pulling, pulling, the, the <laughs> pulling somebody out of those consequences. Um, which is his, his, his prerogative to do. And, and Jacob has been pulled out of plenty of, of his own mud pits that he, that he made for himself. So as we close his, his life and, and, and Joseph's life, here we go, chapter 48. So after this, um, this is just before, this is just before the books of Exodus, this is just before the Israelites are in uh, Egyptian slavery. Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers. Uh, Joseph is now uh, second in charge in all of Egypt, which, which really is like in all of the world in this time. Uh, and his, his, his brother's sin has been found out. And what a lesson there is. You know, you do something dirty and you might get away, for it. You might get away with it for years, decades even. Uh, and then right there standing before his brothers is Joseph, second in command of all the world. And they've been shivering in their boots. They've been quaking in their boots for the last few chapters because they're sure that at any point 
<laughs> Jacob is going to sort of pull the mask off and be like, I'm not actually as nice as I'm pretending to be, and he's going to strike them down. Um, isn't it easy to feel like the Lord is also that way? Uh, but he has, he is going, he's reassured them that he has forgiven them, um, and that's gonna, we're going to come to the climax of that, of that tonight. So after all these things, Joseph <coughs> was told, Behold, your father is ill. And so he took him uh, with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. And then Israel summoned his strength, and he sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. That was in chapter 28. Um, one, of my, one, of my, one of my favorite chapters and one of my favorite lessons that, that I've learned going through the Bible uh, in these last few months, uh, going through Genesis, is remember when, when Jacob was basically on the run? He, he had betrayed his brother, and his brother vowed to kill him, and Jacob is on the run, and it says two times that he, that he came to some place. It doesn't give the name. And there's a lesson there. It's, there's a lesson there that Jacob is, is in between point A and point B. He's in this middle ground no man's land, on the run, alone. All he has with him is his staff, and even there the Lord is with him. Even there in that place of destitution, even there in that place of rebellion and fear and loneliness, the Lord appears to Jacob in a dream, and Jacob leaves the place saying, the Lord was in this place, and I did not know it. And that's true for every facet of our lives. The good, the bad, the ugly, the Lord is there even when we don't know it. So it was there, and then he, he named, it was, the place was called Luz, the place that he named Bethel. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful, and I will multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. So what we're, what we're <clears throat> venturing into here is going to play out through the rest of, of the Old Testament. And I can only, we only have time to make a few remarks as, as we go um, and truth be told, I'm not exactly sure how every, every one of these 12 brothers is going to become a tribe, the 12 tribes of Israel, and each of them are going to have a robust history of their own. And we're going to catch up with that history as we go through the Bible. We, we obviously can't cover all of it tonight, and I, I, don't, I don't know all of it. I, as, I was, as I was catching up on these brothers and I was reading through chapter 49 and all of them get blessed, I was realizing like, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that that was the tribe of Dan that did this thing. Or that that was this tribe that fell into that problem. That, oh, that was a northern tribe, of course. That makes sense because Assyria came in. I was connecting all these dots as I was going through this. I, I'm still learning so much about, about the Bible and about just the, chron the chronology of, of how things progress through the scriptures. And so we're entering into that. Um, so Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and Jacob is basically adopting these two boys. And these two boys are going to become part of the 12 tribes of, of Israel. We'll get more into that in a little bit. But Jacob comes and, he's, and he says, this is, by, by this authority, this is, what I'm, this is how I'm going to do this, because El Shaddai appeared to me. And on that authority, I'm going to take your two boys, and I'm going to basically replace my two oldest sons with them. They're going to take the place of my two oldest, Reuben and Simeon. And this is a... This is something that wasn't caught on to at first because 
Remember, uh, Joseph was living in Egypt, and he took an Egyptian wife, which means that his sons are half Egyptian. And yet they're being adopted into the family of blessing, and they're actually taking prominent positions, the, the, the firstborn position. Reuben was, was Jacob's firstborn, and Ephraim and Manasseh are going to step into the firstborn place of, of Reuben and of the secondborn of, of Simeon. So these, these two kids who, I mean, just speaking through lineage and the family line, they really don't have any right to be here. They're being adopted in. And that is blatantly us. That is so clearly us. That is all of the Gentiles. That's, that's, that's really human beings holistically. We do not deserve to be in God's family. We don't deserve his heaven. We don't deserve his grace. That's why it's grace. We're outside of relationship with him. That death that took place in the Garden of Eden that sin caused was a spiritual death. It, brought, it, br- it brings physical death with it, to be sure, but the real death behind physical death is the separation from the family, and Jesus Christ comes in as the true son, covers us with his blood, and brings us into the family. The grace is always there first. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Jesus didn't come to make the father loving. Jesus came because the father is loving. The grace is always there. The grace is always previous. And so these boys are being brought into a family that they really, like, like, just technically speaking, they don't have any right to be there, and neither do we. We're adopted into the family of God by grace. We're told in, 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 in Roman, Romans 8, 16 says that the spirit, test, the spirit of God testifies with our spirit that we are sons of God. And if we are sons and we're heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. That means we get what Jesus gets. And a little snapshot of that, a shadow of it, a preview of it, that big ultimate truth is these two boys here being adopted into and getting what the firstborn get. They're, they're getting the blessing. Uh, and Jacob says, these two are mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours, and they shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance But as for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died. His wife, Rachel, Joseph's mother, died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go, uh, some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. That was in chapter 35 that, that Rachel died. And so when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, whose are these? And Joseph said to his, to his father, these are my sons whom God, has, whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now, we're told in chapter 47 that, they, that Jacob had been residing in Egypt for 17 years. Joseph was there. There was a famine. Joseph's family came from uh, where they were living up into Egypt because Joseph was the man of the famine. He was the, he was the wise guy. He'd been given the dream. He, he uh, had saved up all of the food, and it was there when his brothers came to get food that Joseph said, da-da, here I am, and that was 17 years ago, and it was, it was interesting to me how much um, theorize, th- theorizing went into why Joseph brings his two sons to Jacob, and Jacob says, whose are these? It's like, you've been here 17 years, dog. You should have it figured out by now. These are your grandkids, uh, but I don't, I don't think that this is 
actually an inquiry for information. This seems to be the, the, the best uh, comparison that, 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 that I read. Um, you know, you don't need to bet the last $3 in your wallet on this, but it seems as if, because this is a ceremony, this is, a, this is like an actual ceremonial thing that's transpiring here. This isn't just small talk. This is sort of like on, at, a, on, at a wedding, uh, given, you know, your typical wedding, father walks his daughter down the aisle, and then the officiant says, who gives this woman away? The officiant's not asking, who are you, dude? He, he knows what's going on. It's just part of the ceremony. Um, I only bring that up because this was kind of an unforeseen hiccup. It was like there was a lot of people that were getting into a, a literary fistfight about what Jacob was saying here, uh, but it seems to just be part of the ceremony. Um, I don't think that he didn't know who his grandkids were. But be that as it may, these are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me that I may bless them. And now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, just like his father's. And so he could not see. And so Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. I don't have anything to say necessarily about that verse, except maybe, it's a, maybe it would be helpful to pause and remember something in your life that was like that. And maybe there's not. Uh, and I would say that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. But I, I, I read that and I was like, man, there are so many things that the Lord has so graciously just, I mean, just another day, another, another chance, another morning of waking up with air in my lungs and blood in my veins that I didn't expect to have. Um, this verse 11 is, is a good one for just sitting back and remembering God's grace. Where has, where has God shown you grace? And what, what's going on right now that three years, five years from now, you might look back and say, man, I never expected that to work out. I never expected that to happen, or I never expected that to ever to, 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 to stop happening. And man, it, it, it did. And man, I, you know, I can testify to even, even the hard things. Looking back, when my, when, when my dad, I've talked about this a lot, but when my dad got throat cancer, the, the first thing the doctor said is, we've caught it early, you don't need to worry, this isn't a death sentence, you're gonna recover from this. And he didn't, it, it took his life. Uh, but there's been so many moments in the last two years, just two years, looking back, and even, even going through something like that, looking back, and man, I never, I never thought that my dad's death, I never expected that my dad's death would bring forth this sort of beauty, this sort of robust um, faith, this firmness of faith that I have now, this worship that I have because I watched my father die slowly, but man, did you notice that he was worshiping the whole time? He never lost that, that, he never lost that sparkle in his eye. His friends would come over with their instruments and sing worship songs, and my dad would lift his hands because he was going home. Like, that leaves an impression. I never expected to see your face, and yet I even get to see your children now. Praise God. The end of his life. You know, this is sort of sentimental. This is the end of his life. Jacob's in the fields here, you know? He's remembering stuff. He's worshiping. He's blessing his grandchildren that he never thought he'd ever be able to see. 
So then Joseph, verse 12, removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right. And he brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn, and he blessed Joseph. So, just in case, (laughs) Joseph has his two kids, and with his right hand, him and his father are facing each other, so he pushes Manasseh forward, which would be his father's left hand, and he pushes Ephraim forward, and that would be, or right hand, and, that would, and then he pushes Ephraim forward with his left, and that would be his father's right hand. They're, they're facing each other. They're, their hands are opposites, and Jacob gets the boys and does this. Uh, sometimes we like to think that our parents don't know any better. <clears throat> I, I had an old boss who used to say, I'm no longer young enough to know everything. I like that. Uh, Israel knows what he's doing. Jacob knows what's, what's going on here. And I, and I love this. It seems, it seems an insignificant thing, uh, and it's, it's certainly not. And Joseph is even going to try to tune his dad up about it. But what I, what I like about this is that even in the seemingly most insignificant details, the Lord is there. The Lord is a God who sees. The Lord is a God who orchestrates. The Lord is a God who is all wise. Remember, <clears throat> I, I was talking about this when we first were getting into the Joseph story. And it says that his brothers went away and Joseph the runt stayed behind and his, brother, his dad said, go see how your brothers are doing. And Joseph didn't really know where his brothers were. Remember it says that he found a stranger wandering in the wilderness and the stranger said, hey kid, where are you heading? What are you looking for? He's like, ah, I'm looking for my brother. He's like, ah, I think they're going to Dotham. I think I overheard him say that. What if Joseph had never bumped into that guy? He would have never been betrayed. He would have never been thrown into, I mean, his brothers might have gotten to it eventually, but he wouldn't have been thrown into the pit. He wouldn't have been sold into slavery with that particular group. Maybe he wouldn't have ended up being sold to Potiphar. Maybe he wouldn't have ended up in prison, and he wouldn't have ended up being the second in command of Egypt. Every little detail, man. The Lord is, is always working. He's always doing something. And then even the places where we mess it up royally, he can take those ingredients and bring beauty out of ashes. Joseph's dad, Jacob, switches his hands. Big deal. Well, the Lord's doing something. Even in the little details, the Lord is doing something. So notice verse 15, it says he blessed Joseph. Uh, Joseph's boys are going to represent him. They're going to represent him in the blessing, and they're going to represent him in the tribes. They're going to, there's going to be a tribe of Ephraim and a tribe of Manasseh. So Joseph is being blessed by representing his boys, but also I think any parent can testify that when, you're, when your kids get blessed, it's a, blessing. it's a blessing to you. I smile when somebody just waves to Ella. You know, I love that. I love it when people are nice to her. Um, so he's, he blesses Joseph, and he says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless these boys, <clears throat> and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. 
Now when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. But Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused. He said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But nevertheless, his younger brother shall be the greater, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And so he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, it's interesting when you compare what's happening with Jacob and Joseph and with the boys and the blessing right now. You remember back to Jacob's beginning, his story with blessing, what he did to his brother. He manipulated him. His mom was in on the scheme. But what's not as, what's not as often talked about is Abraham, uh, or excuse me, Isaac, brought Esau, he wanted to bring Esau in privately. Remember, the, so a prophecy, the prophecy came and the Lord said, these twins that are fighting in your womb, this is, this is symbolic. And the younger brother, the older brother is going to serve the younger. The older brother is going to be second. Uh, his parents knew that. And yet Isaac in his old age takes his son Esau, his firstborn, behind closed doors and it seems like he tries to sneak him a blessing. I know that the prophecy said that the younger or that the older is going to serve the younger, that you're going to serve your younger brother Jacob. Let's not let that happen. Let's get this done quick. And the whole thing blows up because Jacob's mom has the same idea. And Esau must have been a hairy dude because she covers Jacob in goat's hair. And she puts, and so he smells like Esau. She gives him food so that he brings what Esau would bring him. He, the only thing that they couldn't f manipulate was Jacob's voice. But here, Jacob, the same man, decades later, is doing everything out in the open. He's not hiding. They're not behind closed doors. Joseph's there. The boys are there. And this is going to continue. He says, I know what I'm doing, son. I, I know. I'm not scheming. I'm not manipulating. And I'm not wrong. I'm switching my hands on purpose. I know what I'm doing. By you, Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. So thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh, and then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again into the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given, you to, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. So this is worth, this is worth note. Um, your translation might say something completely different there uh, in verse 22. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers a mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Uh, the, word for, the, word, the word for mountain slope uh, can be the word shoulder. Uh, and so one of the translations uh, that, I'm, that I'm fond of, the NET reads like this, as one who is above your brothers, I give you the mountain slope, which I took from the Amorites with my sword 
and with my bow. And this is likely referring to uh, the, ah, boy, the revenge uh, that the brothers took against Shechem after they assaulted uh, their sister. Uh, remember the story, Shechem assaulted the boy's sister and um, two of the brothers went into the camp, um, Simeon and Levi, and didn't just kill that guy, killed everybody, killed all the dudes. Uh, and so, and, and, and Jacob was not happy with that. Um, but it, it could also be a different some other different, different battle, a different piece of land. And it's interesting to me that Jacob is described as sort of this soft man who dwells in tents and sows and he eats vegetarian soup. But with his sword and with his bow, he also was a pretty, you know, he wouldn't want to get in a bar fight with this guy. He was apparently pretty slick. Um, I, I don't exactly know what this means. And the, the Hebrew is a bit ambiguous. Uh, it could mean that, the, that instead of a mountain slope that, his, that Jacob is saying, you are a shoulder you, or you are a slope above your brothers. I'm blessing you more or greater than your brothers with this land that I got with my sword and with my bow. Um, but we're not exactly sure what's being communicated there other than that Joseph is re, Joseph's sons are receiving this huge blessing through uh, being their father's sons. And again, there's our relationship with Jesus. We get blessed because we are in him. So then Jacob called his sons, chapter 49. He said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. This is noted in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, by faith, Jacob blessed his sons. By faith, Jacob blessed his sons, not in secrecy. Again, Jacob isn't doing this in secret. He's not going to each of his sons one by one behind closed doors and like turning them against each other or anything. Everything, everything that he says right here, he says to their face in company. And he says some great stuff and he says some hard stuff. So assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Verse three, so he starts with Reuben. Reuben was the son of Jacob's wife, Leah. You are my firstborn of my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. But verse 4, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and then you defiled it. You went up to my couch. Remember chapter 35, Reuben slept with Bilhah, his, his father's concubine. And Bilhah went on, it was the mother of Reuben's brothers, Dan and Naphtali. That's a dirty deed. And Jacob's saying, for this, you're, you're forfeiting your position as, as firstborn. The blessing of firstborn is going to pass you because you went up onto your father's bed. You are unstable as water. No, and in the, in the line of Reuben, no judge and no prophet and no prince ever came from the line of Reuben. And Simeon and Levi, verse 5, you are brothers, and weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. That means that they cut oxen until they died. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and I will scatter them in Israel. So Simeon and Levi are the two brothers that attacked uh, the men of Shechem. 
and killed them all. Uh, <clears throat> and it's interesting here at the, at, the, at the end of verse 7, he says, I will divide them in Jacob and I will scatter them in Israel. So the people of, of Simeon, when in, in Joshua 14 to 19, 20, 21, right around in there, the allotments of land are given to the tribes. And Simeon is, is given little plots of land within the allotment of Judah. So he they don't really get their own place. It's sort of scattered or diluted uh, in Judah's inheritance. And the, the descendants of Levi, very interesting, um, they are scattered as, as well, but for a different reason. They don't get any inheritance at all because their inheritance is that they become people of the temple. They become the, the tribe of priests. Uh, and so they're not given land per se, but they're given camps throughout all of the tribes, and their inheritance is to be um, the, the, the tribes of, of the high priests. Uh, and, I, and I think that they're sort of saved from <laughs> completely uh, being annihilated because in Genesis 32, Moses is up on the mountain, he's getting the commandments, and the people down on, on the ground level are losing their minds. We saw Moses go up into this cloud of smoke and fire. He's been gone for 40 days. You know what? We don't know what happened to him. Aaron, make for us gods that we can worship. And what Aaron said to his brother was, hey, you know, I got the gold nose rings and bracelets and earrings from the people, and I threw them in this pot, melted it down, and this golden calf just popped out. Woohoo! Yeah. The people got into gross idolatry. Moses comes down the mountain, smashes the tablets that the Lord had just given him on the ground. And he says to the people, who is on the Lord's side and who is not? And it's the people of Levi that joined Moses and then went ahead and killed 3,000 of those idol worshipers. And that was the, that was the tribe of Levi that went on to become the, the people, the, the tribe of priests. Um, and you can, you can read about, about this in Joshua chapter 14, Joshua chapter 19, uh, this, the, the, the uh, cities and the allotments for uh, Simeon and Levi that are in uh, Judah and then scattered throughout, throughout the tribes. So a little bit of a cool history about that. So chat, verse 8, so Judah, a son of, another son of Leah, your brothers shall praise you and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey to the colt of the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. So this is a, an amazing grace. Does anybody, anybody remember what, what Judah did? Chapter 38. D- dirty dude, man. Uh, he slept with his son's wife son who had passed away because she pretended to be a prostitute and then when it came about that she was pregnant he ordered her to be killed but she had his property and said well the man whose property I have here this is the man by whom I am pregnant and Judah kind of just went ah girls 
You know, like he just sort of like shoved it under the rug. He's like, she's more righteous than me. Let's forget it. And the story ends there. It's like he, he just ordered her to be burned right then and there. She proves that he's the one that got her pregnant. And then he just sort of washes over it. He, this guy's got dirt under his fingernails. And yet here he's receiving an amazing blessing. There's been a transformation. He's not the man that he used to be. Uh, and we're told, Revelation 5.5, 5, Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Revelation 5.5 5 says, Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne. He has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Uh, if you go into the genealogies uh, of the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 1, Judah's, Judah's line is linked directly to David, which is linked to, directly to Jesus. This is, this is Jesus' family tree right here. A guy like Judah is in Jesus' family tree. <clears throat> Notice it says, He stooped down and he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter shall not, not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. This was, this was, a, this was a difficult thing to study because these, this is another place where the, the Hebrew is, is sort of hard to translate. And if you have a different, I've got the ESV tonight. Um, if you've got the King James or the NIV, you've, you, your, your Bible probably says something like this. In, in verse 10, the ruler's staff shall not... Uh, leave from between his feet until the coming of Shiloh. Your Bibles might say that, until the coming of Shiloh, or into the, uh, until the one whose right it is, or the one to whom tribute belongs. And however it is that your translation uh, spells that out, the meaning is Messiah. The one who is to come. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the one who actually deserves tribute, until Shiloh comes. And the, the Hebrews understood Shiloh to be the Messiah who is to come. Until Jesus comes, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And the scepter is a symbol of power, of autonomy. And if, it's, interesting if you, it's interesting, if you follow the history of Israel, <laughs> it's it's bloody and they and it's and it's constant war constant battle they're constantly being taken into captivity the whole ten, 10 northern tribes are wiped out completely uh, in 722 bc by the assyrians and the tribes of judah and benjamin are taken into captivity in babylon but even there in babylon they had some autonomy you see this in the book of daniel and then uh, when the Romans come in and subjugate the people in the New Testament, they still have some autonomy. But remember in John chapter 19 what, what the people say when they're bringing Jesus to be crucified and Pilate's trying to get Jesus off the hook. And he says, why don't, why don't you get out of my hair, leave me alone. I'm not going to do anything with this Jesus guy. He seems innocent to me. I can find no guilt in him. You kill him. And they say to him, we are not allowed to put anybody to death. They were unable to carry out capital punishment because at that point, in 12 AD, a new ruler came in and he took away their autonomy to perform capital punishment. He took away their rights. They were under Roman rule right about the time, 12 AD, that Shiloh came. By the time Jesus shows up on the scene, the Israelites had lost their scepter. 
Your scepter will remain. The scepter, verse 10, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And there in 12 AD, they did lose their autonomy. They weren't allowed under Roman rule to carry out capital punishment in their own courts. Their fangs had been removed. They had lost their claws because Shiloh had shown up. The true king had arrived. Jesus was there. And at his trial, they admitted to it. We can't put anybody to death. You, Rome, are enemies. We, we need your help here. Could you, could you help us out? And to him shall be obedience of all peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. This, this is imagery of, the, <laughs> of wine being, being an image of abundance and of blessing. It's sort of like the roads of heaven are paved with gold. In heaven, the most valuable metal here on earth is just going to be what we, it's going to be asphalt. It's going to be what we use to make roads. It's going to be worthless. It's not going to be anything. The tying the colt to the vine is, is a symbol of there's going to be a blessing so much so that the choice vine, the choice grapes are going to be used to tie your donkey up. All those beautiful grapes to make great wine? Ah, that's just where we tie up our donkeys. There's going to be so much blessing in the tribe of Judah. In the tribe of Judah. He washed his garments in wine. Drinking wine is going to be like washing water. It's going to be cheap. It's going to come. It's going to go. People aren't going to pay too much attention to it. But there's also some imagery here of Jesus coming back. The imagery in Revelation of him coming back with his garments soaked in blood. Coming back as the judge coming back to bless those who are his and coming back to be the judge of those who are not. And his, vestis, his vesture is the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. This is imagery of, of, of a tribe with power. Judah is going to be blessed with abundance, blessed with power, and is going to be the direct family line from whom Jesus himself comes. Verse 13, Zebulun, another son of Leah, his name means exalted. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. You can read about this in Joshua 19. Uh, when Zebulun is given his allotment uh, of land, he, his, his, and it's interesting here because it says that uh, <clears throat> Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea, and his land doesn't quite make it all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. But it gets close, and there's a lot of trade routes that go from the land of Zebulun directly to the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and so some people point at this and they go, see, Zebulun didn't inherit land right on the coast, so this is wrong, this is false. That's, that's, a, that's a stretch. A, the Bible doesn't have any problems or contradictions in it. And B, he was close enough to the sea to have multiple trade routes from him to the sea. Uh, so again, you can read about that in Joshua uh, <coughs> chapter 19. In Josh, yeah, Joshua chapter 19. Um, Zebulun is mentioned here first, but he was born after Ishakar uh, in chapter 30 of Genesis. Uh, Ishakar chapter 14, another son of Leah, is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, and so he bowed his shoulder to bear, and he became a servant at forced labor. Uh, the tribe of Ishakar, very strong, very powerful, 
but they actually make peace with the Canaanites when they enter the land so as to just not ruffle any feathers. Um, so they bow before, they bow the shoulder to bear, and they became a servant of forced labor. Chapters, or verse 16 says, Dan shall be the judge of his people, and Dan's name means judge. As one of the tribes of Israel, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I will wait for your salvation, O Lord. Dan becomes a tribe that starts small, but uh, kind of mean. Small but powerful, like, like a snake. Um, small but not afraid of, of a good fight. Uh, Judges chapter 18, starting in verse 27, um, is a good story of, of Dan <laughs> going to battle uh, <clears throat> in, uh, in Judges 18. A serpent in the way, a viper in the path. He bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backwards. And verse 18, this is interesting, all of a sudden there's this sort of interjection Jacob says, I will wait for your salvation, O Lord. <laughs> um, how many times a day, do you, do you, or maybe how many times a year, do you just find yourself sitting back saying, Lord, I don't have any other choice but to just wait for your salvation. For anybody who's read the Bible in its entirety, um, or those of you, I know that there's some people here who, who are going through the Bible in, in 30 days. That's a, that's a good idea. Uh, I, I read the Bible in 38 days uh, in 2023. And one of the things that you pick up on real quick when you do that, um, if you read it, but you don't study it, you just read it story through story through story through story. Dude, dude it's, it is blood and violence and gore and war and manipulation and lying and death all the way through. All the way through, the Lord is intervening with human malevolence and hatred, race wars and, and wars for resources and wars just for vengeance. I mean, it's very much the same thing that we're doing today. It's a lot of blood. It's a lot of chaos. It's a lot of savagery. And then you get to Jesus, and it's all of a sudden like, man, this is God. This is him. I heard Emily say that this week. She's one of, the, she's one of those people who's going through the Bible in 30 days. When you do it, you just see how much blood there is and how awful humans are and how God bringing judgment really makes sense. And it's like right here, there's this moment of clarity where Jacob backs up and he, he gets this sense. I mean, imagine what Jacob has seen. Remember what Jacob has seen in his lifetime, what he did to his family, what his sons did to the men of Shechem, what Laban did to him, and what his brothers did to him. I mean, one of his sons slept with one of his wives. I mean, it, there's this, this is a mess. Yes, this is a mess. Humans are messy. And yet God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. And there's this, there's this moment here where it seems like he, he kind of sits back and he's, he knows that it's going to be bloody. He knows it's going to be violent. He knows that human history is going to be rough. And he sits back and he says, Lord, I just, I wait for your salvation. Oh, Lord, this is going to be a, a wild ride. There is, this is going to be a wild ride. May, may Shiloh come. May Jesus come. We need Jesus. Help. <laughs> this life is hard. Amen. This life is hard. Help. Jesus, we need you. So verse 19, raiders shall raid Gad. Gad was a son of Zilpah. I, I didn't mention this in verse 16. Dan was a son of Bilhah. So raiders shall raid Gad. 
but he shall raid at their heels. Um, Gad is going to be one who is not afraid to fight back. Uh, Gad is, uh, means mighty or experienced warrior. It's interesting, Elijah was, um, he was a Gadite, and he killed 450 prophets of Baal. He was a, he was a fighter. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, he, they, the, the raiders shall raid Gad, um, but Gad will raid the raiders. He will, he will come after them. Uh, and <laughs> Elijah is, uh, is an example of that, killing 450 prophets of Baal. Verse 20, Asher, a son of Zilpah, Asher's name means happy, Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Uh, there will be a, fruit of, a future of prosperity and abundance for Asher, and also for Naphtali, the other son of Bilhah. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Another, another, another tribe that's going to have prosperity and abundance. Now Joseph, verse 22 Rachel's first son, Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring, and his branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, and they shot at him, and they harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved, and his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. For there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings from heaven above, blessings of the deep, that crouches beneath and blessings of the be the breasts of the womb the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of ever of the everlasting hills may be on the head of joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers blessings 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 and more blessings for joseph and man what a what a, a contrast when you consider Joseph's life. You know, betrayed by his brothers, thrown into a pit, left for dead. Ah, let's change our mind. Instead of leaving him for dead, let's sell him into slavery. He was in prison for something he didn't do. Uh, this, you know, this reminds me that the archers, verse 20, 23, the archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved and his arms were made agile. You know, in, in, in Joseph's story, when you are reading through chapters 40 and 41 and 42 and 43 of Genesis, it says over and over that the Lord was with Joseph. He's sold into slavery. He's in Potiphar's house, but everything that he did was blessed because the Lord was with him. Um, took a bit of a sideways turn when Potiphar's wife accused him of sexual assault, which he did not do. He winds up in prison. But even, even there, you know, it says that Potiphar was the captain of the guard, which means that he was the executioner which means you touch my wife, you're dead. That's what that equals. Why didn't Potiphar just have Joseph killed? These weren't people that necessarily shied away from killing their enemies. They were quite good at it. I think even there the Lord was with Joseph and Potiphar kind of suspected that his wife might have been lying and instead of having him killed, had him, had him put in prison. And from there, even in prison, the Lord was with him and everything that he did was blessed. And he gave him the, the ability to interpret dreams, which is eventually what got him out of prison and eventually got him to Pharaoh's right-hand side. All through, Pharaoh, all through Joseph's life, he was blessed, even though so much turmoil took place. And now here at the end of his life, he's being blessed, and he's being blessed, and he's being blessed. And I was thinking, you know, in, in 2 Corinthians, one of my favorite Bible verses, 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes, this light and momentary affliction 
is preparing for us a weight of glory beyond all comprehension. You wound up in prison. Your brothers sold you into slavery. Your boss's wife lied about you. And then the guy whose dream you interpreted forgot about you and you stayed an additional two years in prison. It's like all this stuff was happening. And it was beating Joseph into shape to be the man that could be second in command of all of Egypt. This light and momentary affliction, and that was just on this side of heaven. Who knows what Joseph's doing today in heaven with the Lord? This light and momentary affliction is preparing. You know, there's this beautiful scene in the, the end of Jesus' public ministry, the last night that he's with his disciples in the upper room discourse, he says, you're, he says you, for right now you have sorrow. He says, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going away. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And sorrow has filled your heart. He says, but I will see you again, and your sorrow will turn into joy. And no one will take your joy from you. Your, your, your hearts will rejoice. He says, it's interesting. He doesn't say your, your sorrow will be replaced by joy. Your sorrow will be replaced by rejoicing. It says your sorrow will turn into joy. It's like the sorrow that we experience, this light and momentary affliction is preparing. It's like the pain that we experience and the sorrow that we feel and the losses that we endure are the actual ingredients for the restoration of all things in heaven. It's preparing for us a weight of glory beyond what you could ever imagine. You take an egg, you take a stick of butter, which, you know, you don't, a raw egg on its own isn't that great. A stick of butter on its own isn't that great. Flour on its own isn't that great. But you beat it all together and you put it in 450 degree heat for 45 minutes or an hour and it becomes a cake. You know, like there's a beating that's taken place in Joseph's life, but it has brought about beauty. And the Lord only can do that. Only the Lord, because he's merciful and gracious, gracious can take bones and make an army. Only he can take ashes and make beauty out of them. Uh, and I, there's, there's, there's a hint of this in Joseph's life. Not only uh, in, in his time in, in Egypt, but even here, all of these blessings that he's getting. The Lord takes all of the things. He takes every tear that you shed. And not only does he see it and catch it, but he turns it into glory beyond all comparison. Uh, maybe a glory that we actually experience now. I, I've, I've shared this before. I got arrested, and that arrest led directly to me meeting my wife. I would have not met my wife if I hadn't gotten arrested. The Lord took the ashes, and he brought beauty out of it. And that, that's just here and now, you know? Who knows what my mother is going to get in heaven because she watched her husband die inch by inch of cancer. Who knows the glory that's awaiting her for that? It's an amazing thing to think about. It's a hopeful thing to think about. Joseph's being blessed. His life was hard, and it was blessed. And here at the end, his father is just blessing him and blessing him and blessing him and blessing him. Okay, we got to get moving. Goodness gracious. Um, Benjamin. Verse 27 the other son of Rachel, um, who Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. Um, Benjamin will be one who defeats his enemies. King Saul came from the tribe of Benjamin. Israel's first king came from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, in the book of Judges, <laughs> that fam 
I don't know why it's a famous story. It's one of the few stories that I remember from being a kid. Um, but uh, Ehud in Judges, who killed King Eglon, uh, big, big fat king, stabbed Eglon, and it says that his, his fat rolled over the knife, and it just sort of like absorbed into his body. Uh, <laughs> Ehud came from the tribe of Benjamin, um, and a, a little-known uh, apostle named Paul came from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, so Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. <laughs> yes and amen. Verse 28, all of these things, the, uh, all, of the, uh, all of these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each of them uh, with the blessing suitable to him. And then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah in the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite. That was in Genesis chapter 23 when Abraham bought this plot of land with the burial place. He bought it uh, to possess as a burying place. Therefore, they buried Abraham and Sarah, and they buried Isaac and Rebekah, and there I buried Leah, his first wife. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into his bed, and he breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people. And then Joseph fell on his father's face and he wept over him. And he kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants and the physicians to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. For that is how many are, re- for that is how many are required for embalming. And the, Egypt- the Egyptians wept over him for 70 days. Um, I think it's, I think it's, it's, I think, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of lessons, or at least a few pretty powerful ones, that it's recorded that Joseph, in his position, with his role, with his influence, with his power, is, he cries a lot. I don't like it. <laughs> I, I, it makes me uncomfortable. I'm not a crier, and I should become one. I don't know how to do that. If you have any tips, I'll, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll take any, any advice that you have. But I, it, it's interesting that Joseph is crying. He cries with his brothers at least three times. It said he sobbed so hard he had to leave the room and that his, his servants heard him crying. He cried so hard. This is a man of power. You know, this is the second most powerful man in Egypt. And he's crying and he's kissing his father. Um, I think that there's something really great about that. I think that there's something really great about about an individual who not only, like, is an influential, powerful person, uh, and part of what's included with that is having the strength to allow yourself to cry, uh, to be a person filled with hope, to be a person filled. I mean, you see Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus knowing exactly what's going to happen. Jesus knowing exactly how things are going to turn out, that he's the one who is, he is the resurrection and the life. He had just said that to Lazarus' sisters. And then there he is with a group of people who are crying about Lazarus' death. And the easiest verse in the Bible to memorize, Jesus wept. John chapter 19, verse 33 or 35, something like that. Uh, Jesus wept. God, God is a God who cries. Uh, he's a God who feels our pain. Um, and Jesus is a, uh, Joseph is a, is a shadow of, of, of the Jesus that is to come. And he's weeping over the death of his father. And commanded his servants and physicians to embalm his father. This was, this was very much a, an Egyptian thing. The Egyptians embalmed people. Uh, Hebrews, the Hebrews did not. 
Um, but they mourned for him 70 days, uh, which was the amount of time that the Egyptians mourned for the death of someone of royalty, uh, which I think is also just this, this picture of Jesus. He, he died a criminal's death, but he was given a rich man's burial. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man, gave Jesus, gave his tomb to Jesus to be buried. Um, and the 75 pounds of spices that were put on Jesus' body were the amount, was the amount of spices that were given or reserved for the death of, of royalty. Uh, and we see a, a shadow of that with, uh, with Jacob's death here. And when the days of weeping for him were past, verse 4, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I have hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, and then I will return. And Pharaoh answered and said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh and the elders of his household and the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there, my, my phone's telling me I've been up here for an hour. Leave me alone. Made me lose my spot. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it, was, and it was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with <clears throat> very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. Um, all of Pharaoh's people go with Joseph to bury his father. And this, you, you know, this, this, like, why the entourage? You know, why this big what to do? about Jacob's burial. Um, it, it could be, and I kind of suspect, that there's uh, an image here of what John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. The, 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 the Jews in Jesus' day were very selfish with their salvation. They did not want Gentiles to have anything to do with it, but from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, he said, through you all nations of the world will be blessed. Two of Jacob's grandbabies were half Egyptian. And now there's this entourage of Egyptians going with Jacob and with Joseph and his family to bury Jacob. There's this unifying imagery here. People from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. At the very beginning of the story, the very beginning of the Bible, there's this inclusion that's taking place. On a more practical note, it's likely that Pharaoh wanted his men to go with Joseph, and they left behind the kids and the animals because Joseph, it would, Pharaoh wanted to make sure that Joseph was going to come back. <laughs> you need to come back here. Um, don't be getting any ideas about going back home and getting sentimental about it. I need you to come back to work, so I'm going to have my boys go with you. And your kiddos, they got to stay put. That will ensure that, <laughs> that Joseph makes the trip back to Egypt, um, which, he, which he certainly does. Um, so when the inhabitants of the land of Canaan saw the morning at the threshing floor, they said, this is a grievous morning by the Egyptians. And therefore, the place was named Abel Mitzarim, which means mourning for Egypt or crying for Egypt. 
It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him there in the cave at the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with, from, <coughs> with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. And so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did this evil to you. Now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Yeah, that's probably not true. It's probably not true that Joseph said, hey, Joseph, Take it easy on your bros. Uh, it seems like they conjured this up because they were afraid that, well, now that dad's out of the way, Joseph's going to stop this, this pretending to be nice guy thing, uh, and he's going to exact vengeance. Um, but Joseph, Joseph weeps when he hears this. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Here he is crying again. I, I wonder why he's crying. It's just, uh, it's just speculation. I, 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 don't, I don't know, um, but we're friends and family here. We can chat it out. It, it, I wonder if it's because he's, he's hurt that his brothers think of him that way. If for the last 17 years, Joseph has been biting his tongue uh, and, and, and bawling his fists, waiting for the opportunity to shed blood. As soon as dad's dead, I'm going to break some necks. Uh, and when this is expressed, he's, he's sad that that they think this of him. And uh, this, this convicted me as I was, as I was going through this. I've, I've shared this before. I, my, my conception of God when I was growing up is that he was a six foot four MMA fighter. That's what I, that's what I thought. Like he's, he's, he, he's a bully. He's roided out. He's got big pecs, biceps the size of my thigh muscles. And there's, like, and, he's, and there's nothing that you can do to a guy like that. He's big and he's a professional fighter and he's running around giving people noogies and flicking people in the Adam's apple. And you can't, do, you can't defend yourself. He's big, he's bad, he's a pro fighter. You just kind of got to take it. That's, what, that's, how I, that's how I conceptualized God. For decades, that's how I thought of, of him. Uh, and I wonder if that, yeah, I, 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 think that that, I think that bothers him when we think of him wrongly. And, and maybe, you know, not everybody thinks of God as a six foot four MMA fighter. He's not Tito Ortiz in everybody's imagination. But where are we imagining God wrongly? Do we think that God is our earthly father? Do we do the Lord the disservice of putting on him the character of our own earthly dads? I mean, even the best dad here on earth is a bit short of our good and gracious Father in heaven. Um, that just, that, that, that pricked my heart as I, was, as I was going through this, that Joseph is, 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 is grieved that his brothers think this of him. Um, and man, the Lord's grieved when we think of him wrongly. Um, when we think of him as vindictive and mean and, male and malevolent and, and as, a, as a bully, you know, he's not. He's not. When he reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, the first thing he says is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Praise God that he is that. So Joseph wept and when they spoke to him and his brothers came and they fell down before him. This is verse 18. Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. This is one of those radically mysterious truths that it's kind of fun to talk about and it's kind of fun to play with, but it is so beyond our, our human computation. The, the arithmetic of heaven does not compute to the human mind. Um, Joseph's brothers did exactly what they wanted to do. I do not believe that the Lord made them do it. I do not believe that like a robot or like a video game, the Lord used his joystick to make Joseph's brothers throw Joseph into a pit and then decide to put him into slavery and then make Potiphar's wife decide to lie about him. I don't, I don't, I don't believe that that's what happened. The scriptures don't, they don't tell us that. Human beings make choices. Human beings do things. Somehow, the Lord takes that sin and brings about good, brings about beauty, brings about an orca- an, a, a, a choreographed, orchestrated scheme. I don't know how he does it. He's God. <laughs> Let him be God here. That's all I'm saying. Let him be God here. I don't know how he does it. I get a little uncomfortable with people who think that they have it figured out down to the decimal point. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. I I don't know how he does it. Would I have met my wife if I hadn't been arrested? Maybe. The Lord would have made it happen someplace else or some way else. But the way that it happened, I got body slammed by the cops, and a week later, I was flirting with my Portuguese hot stuff, man. Who are you? What's your name? Where are you from? Right on. I wouldn't have been there. I wouldn't have been in that cafe. I wouldn't have been in the city of Portland if I hadn't have been arrested. The Lord somehow used my sin to bring about beauty. I don't know how he does it, but can we just worship him that he does it? Can we just love that he is the, a God who does that? You, my brothers, meant this for evil. God meant it for good. He turned it around for good. I'm in, I'm in second in command in Egypt, and we we brought about a way to save all these millions of people from starving to death in the famine. Let it go. And listen to what he says to his brothers. This is the very last thing that he says to his brothers on the topic. It keeps coming up again and again and again and again. We sold our brother into slavery. Oh no, here he is. Oh, oh he, he sent us back home, but we, have, we, we, bought, we bought food but our money is still in our saddlebags. How did that happen? Oh my God, he's gonna kill us. We better go back and we better fix it. Well, bring your brother. You're not, remember that whole story, all that drama, all that stuff. They've been scared of Joseph this entire time. Listen to the last thing Joseph says to him regarding the entire thing, the entire event, the entire subject. The second half of verse 21. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. There is an image of God's grace. John chapter 8, a woman caught in the act of adultery, thrown at the feet of Jesus. Jesus says, all right, well, those of you who have, the, have no sin, go ahead and toss the first stone. I'm waiting. And she's left there alone with Jesus, suffocating anxiety. Can you imagine being at the feet of God, having been in the bed of another woman's husband just hours before? 
Remember what Jesus says to her? She's, she's repentant. She's not arrogant. She's humble. And Jesus says to her, where are your accusers? And she says, there are none, Lord. And he says, neither do I accuse you. Go your way and sin no more. Grace, mercy, man. That's, it's his kindness that leads to repentance, amen? The last thing that Joseph says to his brothers regarding the entire subject is he comforts them and he speaks kindly to them. Verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Makur, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. Joseph adopts his own, grand, his own grandkids later in life. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The book of Genesis ends with a coffin. It's interesting. Uh, the book begins with um, <laughs> a lot of hope. It begins with creation, and it begins with a promise or an imperative. The Lord says, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, and the Lord says, not only multiply, remember what he says to Abraham, he says, your descendants will be as the dust of the earth. They'll be, he says, go outside and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you're going to have. Uh, and then the story is punctuated with these women who are biologically unable to have kids. That's an interesting, that is an interesting choice. That is an interesting uh, strategy for a family that is going to be as numerous as the stars to have multiple women who can't have kids. And the story here ends with a guy in a coffin. It's interesting, the word coffin is the same word that's used for ark, the ark of the covenant. It's the same exact word. And Joseph's bones are carried with the people of Israel when they leave Egypt in the Exodus. So throughout the entire sojourning of Israel, through the wilderness wanderings, all those decades, they're carrying around a dead guy's bones, and they're carrying around the ark of the living God at the same time. This is one of, my, this is one of the most powerful truths that I have come across in easily the last, I mean, maybe, maybe in my entire walk with the Lord. Um, one of the most powerful things that I have read in the Bible and gone, oh wow, that's true. That's true. The bones. It's the bones. What's with the bones? Well, we talked about this just a couple weeks ago on a Sunday morning. When Jesus comes to earth, he is the spotless lamb. He is the true sacrifice. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he is put on a cross. He is mutilated to death and he is murdered. But he dies quick. Crucifixion typically took two or three days to kill a man. Jesus dies in about six hours. The Jewish enemies of Jesus 
go to Pilate, the Roman governor, and say, we need to get these bodies off the cross because tomorrow is a holy day and curses every man who hangs on a tree. We can't have these bodies hanging on a cross on our holy day, so let's break their legs, expedite this dying process, get them off the cross, and go have the Sabbath supper. (laughs) And so Pilate gives the order, break their legs. The soldiers, Roman soldiers, whose bound duty is to obey at all costs, break the first guy's legs, break the second guy's legs, they come to Jesus and they do not break his legs. Because Psalms 34 says that not a bone in his body would be broken. Jesus has power even in his death. His death was not him being a victim, it was him being victorious. It proved, even, I mean guys, I know this is redundant for those of you who were there a couple weeks ago, but Seriously, this is the truth of the entire universe. Jesus Christ is God. In John chapter 19, Pilate is giving Jesus a hard time. He says, do you know that I have authority to kill you or I have authority to set you free? And Jesus looks at him in the white of his his eyes and he says, you would have no authority unless it was given to you. Pilate gives the orders to break Jesus' legs and his soldiers disobey a direct order and don't break his legs thus fulfilling prophecy, thus proving Jesus is God, thus proving that even in death, Pilate has no authority over Jesus. And so what did they do? They pierced his side, which also fulfilled prophecy, Zechariah 12.10. Jesus, even in death, couldn't be God. He let himself die. Jesus says in John 10, you don't take my life from you, I lay it down of my own accord. The bones of Joseph the bones of Jacob. Take my body back home. Take my bones back home. In Joshua chapter 24, the last paragraph or so of the book of Joshua, it says that Joshua took Joseph's bones and buried him in Shechem. What is the deal with the bones? Where the bones are, there is hope. Ezekiel chapter 37, look, a valley of dry bones. Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel said, Lord, you, you know, you know if they can live. And the Lord put sinews and flesh and life into those bones, and those bones became an army. The bones not broken is a sign of resurrection. It's a sign of hope. There at Golgotha, where Jesus' body was hanging on a cross, the song, Psalms 34, was playing on the horizon, and I don't think anybody heard it, but it was playing. It was there. That song of hope is still playing. Jesus Christ offers life eternal to those who will repent and put their faith in him. The grace is already there. We just step into it. The victory has already been had. We just accept it. We get what Jesus gets. We become sons of God. We become co-heirs with Christ. The bones here lying in this coffin that that these guys carried around through their 40-year wanderings in the wilderness, that hope of resurrection was always with them. And in the very next story, in the very next book, Exodus begins with a baby in a box, not a coffin, but an ark, little baby Moses, who's going to lead those people of Israel out of Egypt. Genesis ends with a dead man in a box, and Exodus begins with a baby in a box. There is the hope of resurrection ever before us. There is the hope of Jesus Christ ever before us. Amen? Amen.